Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. Okay, so we kind of started John chapter 2 last week, and I'm going to quickly go through those headings, and then we're going to get to the verses where we stopped. All right, John chapter two. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Last week, we really broke into the idea of this wedding that it is not a surprise that Jesus began his ministry at a wedding because at the end of everything, there will be a glorious wedding celebration, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we went through that together, the the different parts of the Jewish wedding, if you remember. We talked about how the bride was chosen and how we have been chosen. We talked about the fact that the bride price would be agreed upon, and the bride price revealed not only her value, but his ability to provide, and the fact that Jesus bought us with his precious blood, that he thought we were worth dying for. And it did show his ability to provide, provide our salvation, provide righteousness. We talked about the fact that the groom would make a pledge of his commitment and that he would also leave a gift. And we talked about how he said, listen, I'm pledging my commitment to you. Do not be discouraged. I'm going to build a place for you. And I promise you, I will return. And just so you know, I'm not leaving you alone. I I never... Um, I never leave my bride alone. I'm going to leave you a gift. And we, we saw last week that that was the counselor, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been deposited inside of us as a guarantee that he will return for us. We talked about the fact that it, that then started the betrothal period. And you remember that beautiful story I read to you by Max Lucado about the peasant girl and the prince. And then we have the beautiful return. Oh, how awesome is that? The father says, son, go get your bride. He gets his groomsmen. They come at night with lights, and they're blowing the horn and celebrating, and the bride has been waiting, and he comes, and he gathers her up, and there is a great celebration that lasts a week, and then you have the beautiful consummation at the end. We talked about all of this last week representing, hey, yes, this is a part of the celebration of a wedding, but this This is what we have to look forward to in the end, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, those who are invited are so blessed to be a part of the marriage supper of the Lamb. But this wedding is in Cana. Do you remember where that is? We talked about it. Little town, not far from Nazareth, maybe eight or nine miles from Nazareth. Nathaniel is from there. And somehow this wedding involves some kind of family or close friends to Jesus' family because who's really involved? Mary. Mary's involved. She knows what's going on behind the scenes and she realizes there's a problem that they have run out of wine. And listen, this is a big problem because do you remember what I told you? This is a big event. And are you kidding me? In a small town, this is the event. They're all a part of it. They've all been waiting on it. It is unbelievable. And so for them to run out of wine would have been the most embarrassing moment. It would have brought great shame on the family and they would have never lived that down. Do you think Mary can relate to that? Do you think Mary understands what gossip in a small town is like? 
and the fact that something can happen where you feel shame and you can never live it down. And so with this great empathy, she comes to Jesus and she basically says, hey, they're out of wine. They're out of wine. Another thing I would like to think of is what was Jesus like at this wedding with his disciples? I think he was a blast to be around. I think he had a smile on his face. I think he celebrated. I think he was in no way a dud. I don't think he looked around in judgment. I think they were singing and dancing and enjoying each other in relationship. Do you remember last week we talked about if someone wants to judge, they will always find something to judge? They will. On one hand, I mean, this was quite the scene. Remember, Andrew and John at one point followed John the Baptist. What was he like? I mean, he wore animal skin with a leather belt. That's not a great style. And he was a Nazarite. He did not touch the vine. He ate locusts and honey. I mean, that is strict. They're coming from that over to Jesus. And remember, when the Pharisees looked at both, they thought John the Baptist, well, he has a demon. And Jesus, they called him a glutton and a drunkard. Listen, if someone wants to find a problem, they can. But I think this was a beautiful, innocent celebration of people coming together and celebrating community and celebrating this beautiful marriage. Because isn't that why he came? He came so he could pay our price so that we could enjoy this same wedding. And so she comes to Jesus and says, oh my goodness, they have no wine. Why did she come to Jesus? That should be a question on your mind. Well, did you notice that Jesus' father is not mentioned at all? Jesus' father is not mentioned because most people believe that by this time he has passed away. We don't know when, okay? And so, but what we do know is back at the age of 12, we had a little bit of foreshadowing of when they lost Jesus and he was in the temple. He said what? Why are you so stressed out? Did you not know that I should be about my father's business? Well, somewhere along the way, though, after 12, and I don't know if it was 18 years later or some portion of the 18 years, he was about his father's business, Joseph, his earthly father. And so somewhere along the way, he had assumed that role of the father of the home or the leader of the home. And so Mary was accustomed to depending on Jesus. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, can't you imagine? He was a pretty good person to depend on. I thought about his attributes. Great wisdom. I mean, for goodness sake. Work ethic? You kidding me? Problem solver? Not a problem he can't fix. Trustworthy? Good with people? Empathetic? Persuasive? He was a carpenter. Actually, a stonemason. He was handy. So... Was she asking for a miracle? I don't know. I don't know if she was asking for a miracle, assuming a miracle, or if that's just her mode of operation, that when there was a problem, who did she go to? She went to Jesus. But I do know this. She had started to see the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. She started, she knew that John the Baptist had baptized him. She knew that he had been confirmed by a heavenly sign. She knew that he had endured temptation, that he had been publicly announced by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God. She knew, obviously, because they're at the party, that he had begun to gather disciples. 
She knew about his, the supernatural events surrounding his birth. Remember, all these things she pondered in her heart all of this time. She even remembered the words of Anna and Simeon at the temple about seeing, finally seeing the Holy One. But Jesus said to her, in verse 4, it says, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. I'm going to tell you right now, if my son has said woman, okay, not the same, okay, not the same. You need to understand, actually in the Hebrew, this word was a term of respect and affection, but not intimacy, okay? Respect and affection, but not intimacy. What was the point? Their relationship was changing, she needed to understand this. His priority no longer was to be her son. His priority was to be the son of man, the Messiah. And can I tell you moms out there, this, this is a very hard change. If we didn't give birth to the Messiah, you might think you did, but you didn't. <laughs> All right, but at some point, can I just tell you, it is good and natural and necessary for the relationship to change. And I personally believe it is harder with sons. There is something about those daughters that we, they, first off, we know they can rule the world. We know they can, right? And I personally believe they're a little bit more critical of their mothers. You know why? Because it's always a juxtaposition of comparing and seeing where they are. Sons aren't like that. You feed them, you love them, it's pretty good, okay? But there's something about those fathers and sons I mean, fathers and sons, mothers and sons. And so at some point, though, that boy, what? <laughs> Needs to become a man. Let him. Quit going to him with all your problems, right? That's just a little 411. That, I don't even know where that came from. That might be the Holy Spirit speaking to me right now, you know, that there you go. Okay, so he says, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? Literally in the Hebrew, these are the words. What to me and to you, woman? What to me and to you, woman? This is a Semitism, and it has two different meanings. See which one you think applies here. Number one, when one person was unjustly bothered by another, it actually meant, what have I done to you that you should do this to me? You think that fits? No. The second when someone was asked to get involved in a matter he felt was no business of his. In other words, this is your business. How am I involved? So he's allowing her to know, listen, my number one priority is not to be your son. I have started my ministry. My priority is to be the son of man, the Messiah. This is your business. Why are you involving me? And then he says, the hour has not yet come. Do you remember that from other scriptures? My hour has not yet come. Most of the time, it is quoted when there is a threat of death or it's talking about his coming death. And so by using that phrase, we see that he is on a divine schedule now. And that divine schedule will culminate in his final death and resurrection. All events leading up to that are going to be determined by his father 
not his mother. You understand? So in these words, he's saying a lot. He's saying, our priorities have changed. My honor is here. My respect is here. But this intimacy, this dependency, it's changing. Because now I'm about my father's business. And I am on a divine schedule. And that divine schedule ends in my death and my resurrection. And that schedule is determined by my father, not by you. And what do we know? Jesus came to do the will of his father. It says that every word he speaks was the word that his father gave to him. He is on that trajectory right now. And then she turns and looks at the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you. She does not argue. And I can't assume that she thinks he's going to do anything. Obviously, it, this miracle was on his father's divine schedule. But she literally turns and says some brilliant words. Do whatever he tells you. And I want to stop right here. And I want you to let you know, Mary is a blessed woman. Absolutely. She was highly favored to be the mother of Christ but one commentary said this, and I thought it was really good. It says, but to, but to favor her or to deliberately go through Mary to get to Jesus is to regard Jesus as hard-hearted and Mary as tender-hearted. Let me read that one more time. To deliberately <clears throat> go through Mary to get to Jesus is to regard Jesus as hard-hearted and Mary as tender-hearted. Because what you need to understand is he's saying right now, this relationship that we have of father, of mother and son is changing. I am now going into my role of Messiah. And now I'm about my father's business. You see that later when Mary and <clears throat> the brothers show up and they say, they interrupt Jesus' teaching and say, hey, your family's out there. And he says, who are my mothers and my brothers? He is on a divine mission as the Son of God, the Messiah. Jesus is the intercessor between man and God. We have one. He is the intercessor. I want you to hear these verses. <clears throat> Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's Jesus, not Mary. You have an intercessor. Is she favored? Is she honored? Was she blessed as the mother of Jesus? Absolutely. I cannot imagine what she felt, endured, experienced. I can't imagine the transitions she had to make. I can't. I think she is awesome. I honor her as the mother of the Messiah. I honor her, but she is not my intercessor. My intercessor is Jesus. We have one. I don't need to go through Mary to get to the heart of Jesus. I have the heart of Jesus. That's who I have. John 14, 6 says this. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death 
and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let me tell you who understands what you're going through. It's not Mary. It's Jesus. Jesus was tested in every way. Jesus felt the weight of all of our sin upon him and everything that went with it. He paid the debt. If there is anyone who understands who you are and where you are and your pain and what it is you need, trust me, it is Jesus. He died for you. He loves you. You have his heart. And he is the one who is always intercessing on your behalf. You could go straight to him. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain, the veil that separated the holy of holies from the holy place was ripped from top to bottom. That was his flesh. And because of his death and resurrection, we have full access through Jesus to the Father. You need to be confident in that. But let me say, trust her words. She's a wise woman. Because what did she say? Whatever he says, do it. She's smart. So I'm going to tell you, I would trust the words of Mary more than I would trust this, her ability to intercede. That's not her job. She was saved just like you were. And so do whatever he says. Verse 6 says this. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and the disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Let's break this up. Six stone water jars. The number six is typically the number that represents man. Man was created on the sixth day. So it represents man, it represents imperfection. What were these water jars used for? Purification, washing. They represented the external washings that the Jewish people had to go through. Why? To fulfill the requirements in the old law. Constant external washings. But we see right here, do you remember last week I told you that you're going to see themes throughout John of the old becoming new. The old becoming new. Water to wine. Old temple, new temple. Old water, living water. Do you remember that? We're beginning to see these signs um, show the old becoming new. So this water is going to be turned into wine. Wine often represents blood. If you were at church this weekend, especially uh, where I am, you could have partaken in what we call the Lord's Supper. What does the wine or the grape juice represent? The blood of Christ. Luke twenty two twenty says this, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you in the new covenant of my blood. 
So the, the wine or the grape juice represents the blood of Christ that was shed so that we can have the new covenant of grace. Why do we drink it? Why do we do the Lord's Supper? To remember. What is it that we're remembering? We're remembering that he paid the bride price, right? That we have been redeemed, but we're also remembering because what do we have to look forward to? The celebration, the marriage supper of the lamb. I'm telling you, I do the Lord's Supper different because now, yes, I'm drinking because I know that the blood of God has redeemed me. But I'm telling you, I am drinking that and I am looking forward to the time when we all come together to that celebration, to come together, the marriage supper of the Lamb, with all those that we have lost. And we come together and you want to talk about a family reunion and a great celebration and matter of fact, in Matthew 26, 29, Jesus is so committed to this that he says, until we are together, I won't drink it again. He's holding off. You want to talk about a teetotaler? He's a teetotaler right now because he's saying, I will not forget you. Matter of fact, this wine, this cup will not touch my lips until we are celebrating all together again. So down here, we are taking the bread, his body, and, his, and the blood, the wine, and we are remembering that he has paid our price, that we are betrothed to the bridegroom, and that we can, in anticipation, be excited about a celebration when we come together in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Remember, without his blood, we wouldn't even have a dress. Do you remember me talking about that a little bit? Isaiah 61.10, we greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Because Jesus died for me, I could take off the old self and I could put on his righteousness. Listen, not only is he presenting me to himself to show the world, look, this is what I've known about her all along, but he paid for my dress with his blood and all I have to do is say yes to the dress. It's all him. And so this is what we are remembering. The next time you take the Lord's Supper, do not take that like we have forgotten what we're doing. Be thankful that he has bought you. He has redeemed you. He has pledged his love for you. He has left the Holy Spirit within you. He keeps his promises. He will return from you. What a glorious day. And we are taking that to remember and to anticipate that great celebration. Wine also symbolizes joy. In this joyous occasion, it would not have been a good omen to run out of wine. Wearsby says this, if our Lord had preached a sermon after he turned the water into wine, what might he have said? That the world's joy always runs out? I got to thinking in many ways, the world's joy is a hook, just like this wine. It is a hook. It is a hook promising great satisfaction and elation, yet over time it proves lacking. But I wonder, are we unaware because our senses have become dulled? Would we even recognize a quality drink if we had one? 
I think right there, that would be a great journal question for you this week. The hook of the world, all the joys that it promises. I say this all the time when I'm out speaking. Let me teach you something that cost me $250 an hour, right? You've heard me say that? If your love cup is out for everybody else or something else to fill, you're gonna be empty because the only one who can fill it is the one who knows everything about you, knit you together in your mother's womb, knows all your skeletons and chose you anyway. That is what will fill you. So you have a beautiful example here about how the world hooks you, shows you all this great joy. It is so good, but over time it dulls. And by then, have we become so dull that we don't even appreciate a good drink when we, when we get it? Yet the atonement of God and therefore the joy of God never runs out. It is filled to the brim. Did you notice that with the jars? You might want to highlight it. They filled it to the brim. John 7, 38 says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When the master of the feast tasted the wine, he knew this was no ordinary wine. This was a wine like no other he had tasted. And it didn't even matter if his senses had become dulled. Psalms 34, 8 says this, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The Samaritan woman, she'd been craving it and she didn't even know it. As Jesus began to talk about this living water, her mouth started to water. Sometimes we don't even know what it is we want until we see a little piece and then we crave. You know, when... Um, when Zachary passed away, there was this um, idea that just came in my mind one morning that just gave me peace. Thought I'd share it with you today. I was out and <clears throat> I had talked to my friend, uh, Dr. John Lees, and he had been encouraging me because he had lost his son, Jordan. And he was telling me about a book he'd been reading about heaven where people who had had these experiences all said the same thing. I can't explain it to you. But when I saw him, Jesus, I knew him and I knew that he knew me and we were one. And they were like, it's hard to explain, but that's how I felt. And I remember thinking, I just wonder, because Zach and I used to talk about the fact that God put eternity in the hearts of men. He was like, he loved apologetics and we would talk about things and he would say, you know, I've always asked people who don't believe in God, who just believe in evolution, what is it then in every man, uh, every tribe, tongue, and nation, there has always been this desire to worship something. Where did that come from in the middle of this dog-eat-dog -dog, uh, evolutionary world? Why the desire to worship something? And I used to tell him because God puts eternity in the hearts of men. That's why. And I got to thinking when he talked about that, that the fact that God says, I knew you intimately in your mother's womb. What does that really mean? What kind of intimate relationship did God have in that womb? And then we're born into this life. And it's like that got clouded. But yet God put eternity in the hearts of man. There's something in there that we are still longing for. And he is pulling us 
back to that relationship. And although we see through clouded glass now, one day we will see him face to face. And when that happens, to see him is to be truly known and to truly know and to go, oh my gosh, that's what I've been missing. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Reminded me of an old song some of you young'uns will never remember, but do you remember that song? Who can satisfy my soul like you? Who on earth could comfort me and love me like you do? Who could ever be so faithful true? I will trust in you, Lord. I will trust in you, my God. Do you remember it? There is a fountain. Who is the king? Victorious warrior and Lord of everything. My rock, my shelter, my very own, blessed Redeemer, who reigns upon his throne. Why didn't y'all sing that with me? If you know it, right? Let me tell you something about music. You could be in the depths of despair, and when you hear some of this old music, it brings you back to life, all right? Oh, taste and see. The miracle was all Jesus. Did you notice that? He did it all. But he allowed the servants to be a part of the blessing. Let that sink in. Who truly got really blessed through this whole thing? The servants and the disciples. It changed their lives. Jesus did the miracle. We're not in the, in the job of doing the miracle. But he allows us to be involved, to take it, because actually the blessing is on us. On Saturday this weekend, when we were driving from Oklahoma City and we came into Waco, you have to remember, I'm a Baylor grad. Okay, this is my area. And you would think that it would just all be good. A matter of fact, I spoke at a church called Columbus Avenue Baptist Church. And when I was 19 years old, I went with all the green carpet of this church because the Baylor Bears. And I wore an 80s suit. Do y'all know that our clothes did not fit us in the 80s? Have you looked back? What, what were we wearing? Like this suit had the biggest shoulder pads you've ever seen in your life. It in no way fit my body whatsoever. I mean, and I had pantyhose. Lord knows I haven't seen pantyhose since they were in an egg. Like I don't. Have you seen pantyhose? Okay, I, that's what I was wearing in this church when I was 19 years old. And I got up there thinking I was Sandy Patty. And it was like, upon this rock, I will build my key. I mean, I was singing up a storm. 31 years later, I walk in there as the speaker. Unbelievable, I was sitting there and then all these triggers started hitting me, and you would think they'd be good. I was having a hard day, probably because I poured out so much the night before that you tend to be a little bit vulnerable, and then all these triggers were hitting me, and I was having a day. 
And I was missing Zachary, and I was thinking about my life, and where did it go, and how did I get here, and I mean, you name it. My marriage, my everything. I, I was low, and I was struggling. And I was barely making it, and I thought, okay, fake it till you can make it. So I'm in there, and I'm doing my thing, and this woman comes up, and she said, I just want you to know that you are the speaker here for a reason tonight. And I said, okay. And she said, my friend lost her son one month ago. He was 21, and she has not been out until now. This is her first event. And I went, oh, girl, it's going to get real up in here tonight. So y'all need to sit around her. And I'm telling you what, I got up on that stage, and I poured it out and this woman broke down, and we had, I had the ability at the end of the, the service to go wrap my arms around her and just sob with her because I knew where she was. And I thought, what a blessing, Lord, that in the worst day of a message that's very hard for me to give, that you would allow me the blessing in my brokenness to reach out to this woman. God doesn't need us. Do you know that? <laughs> I sent a text and freaked my mom out <clears throat> where I was saying, everybody's forgettable. Everybody's forgettable. They're all talking about Baylor football and Baylor world, and they don't know my son. They didn't know how awesome he was. Everybody's forgettable. Yeah, they are, except Jesus. And we have the privilege of taking that one and being blessed by doing it. He really is the only one we want to make famous. And so they were completely blessed by being able to take the wine. It totally makes sense to me that the first sign would be a wedding where he would manifest his glory. He would reveal who he was. Think about it. That's what a sign is. It points to something. This sign was pointing, was manifesting who he was. And remember, that's the whole theme of John. I've written these things so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you would have life in his name. And so what is he doing? He's manifesting his glory. How? I'll tell you how. He's backing up a lot of what John has said. In the beginning, before the beginning began, there was the logos, the thing that brings order out of chaos, that divine reason that anybody with two eyeballs can look at creation and see. He is the word. He was with God in the beginning. He was God. All things are made through him. He is the logos. What do you need for wine? You need a seed. You need vines, right? Grapes, crushing, straining, Right? All, to be honest, he's all those things. He is the promised seed. He is the vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. He is the first fruits. He was crushed for us, and he was tested and proved innocent. But to be honest, he didn't need a darn thing. Why? Because he is the logos. He created everything out of nothing. Remember, he opened his mouth and every atom and molecule lined up and obeyed him. He is the logos and he is revealing it through this where he makes water 
into wine with nothing of what you need to make wine. He is also the one that Moses spoke about. Remember? Do you remember all this testimony? Who said that? Philip. Philip said to Nathanael, this is the one that the prophets have written about. This is the one that Moses has spoken about. Think about Moses. What was his first miracle in the plagues? He turned the water into blood judgment. Let my people go. What did Jesus do? He turned the water into wine. That is grace. Beautiful. John the Baptist was correct in saying that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Every time I teach this uh, new wine thing, it always reminds me of, and I don't know if y'all been with me a long time. If you had, you got to hear the same stories. But it always reminds me of when I went to this one church that was very charismatic. And don't get me wrong, I got some Pentecostal in me. I'm going to tell you, I, I can shout and worship like you've never seen, okay? But this wasn't my background. I've told you before I grew up Southern Baptist, you didn't raise your hand unless you had a question, okay? So I go to this little church, and I'm doing all the praise and worship, and, and these two pastors get up on stage from South Africa. Well, I should have known it was a bad deal when I arrived, and the preacher's wife said, oh, is this the Sunday you're supposed to be here? And I thought, well, what kind of greeting is that? I said, well, I think so, ma'am. I go, is everything okay? And she goes, oh, yeah, we just have some pastors from South Africa, and they're a little extreme. And I'm like, okay, whatever. So I do my thing, and I love singing to charismatic people because they talk to you when you sing, and the more you talk to me, the louder I sing. So it was a good day. I thought, no big deal. And then these pastors get up, and they're, they're going to preach. I'm so excited. They're going to preach on the new wine, this miracle that we're talking about right here. And so I'm going to tell you what the entire message consisted of. And it was the new wine. And it was the new wine. And it was the new wine. And I was like, what about it? <laughs> and I am sitting out there and I am thinking, what in the world are you teaching these people? What difference does it matter if it is the new wine? I was like, tell them something to sink their teeth in. Give them a message, right? Well, at the end of it, all of a sudden, there was a transition that nobody prepared this Southern Baptist girl for. And all of a sudden, I look, and these women are falling out in the aisles. And I'm looking like a deer in a headlight because I've never seen anything like it. Barely even on TV. I'm sorry, that's just how I was raised. I was like, wow. And all of a sudden, that pastor looks out in the crowd and he says, where's that singer? I almost died on the spot. <laughs> where's that singer? And to be quite honest, I looked behind me praying to God. There was another singer that he was talking about. And then he had the audacity to say my name. In front of the whole church, where's Shannon? Bring me Shannon. And so I didn't know what to do. I was young at the time. Now I would turn around and walk out the back door because those people don't know me. But I was trained to be obedient. So I'm like, I just let him in worship. What am I going to do? And I looked at uh, Doug at the time, and he didn't seem like he knew what I should do. So 
I just went, okay. So I started walking up the side aisle. I'm scared out of my mind. I'm the only person I think talking to Jesus that day. And I was like, Lord, if there's something to this, I'm scared. And Lord, if there's not something to this, I'm really scared. Because what am I going to do? And so I'm walking up the side and the pastor's wife comes to me and she says, are you all right? And I went, well, not really. But I get up there and I'm two, two rows down from him or, and he's praying on my head and pushing my head and this whole prayer and he pushes me on the head and I sit down, but I'm sitting straight up. And we catch eyes and he says, bring her back to me. She didn't receive enough of the spirit. And I go, you can fail? This is something you can fail. I just failed. Threes don't like to fail, okay? And I'm like, so they yanked me back up so that he could hit me again. This time I sat down and I just decided I would lay back. <laughs> I was like, and we still had eyes. And I'm like, listen, you hit me one more time. You're going to see a Southern girl. It's going to be a problem. And so I laid there. The whole time I'm laying there, I'm horrified. And I'm thinking, what is the etiquette? for being slain in the spirit. How long should I lay here? I finally get up, I come back, and I cannot wait to get out of the church. I go into the fellowship hall where Zachary, maybe at the time, might have been six or seven. He, they were having a potluck, and he had a chicken leg almost up to his mouth. And I said, son, get the chicken leg and get in the car. And he looked at me, I go, now. That boy took that chicken leg and just turned... I'm going to tell you, it was one of the worst, worst moments of my life. I was, I bawled for two hours. I was enraged after that. And then I preached in my house like a charismatic woman. Because here is the thing. Why is it that we want to see the sign, but we're not interested in the message? Listen to this verse. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demanded signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. I'm going to tell you something. If all you want is the miracle and the sign, you are missing it. Because the depth of it is that a sign points to something. This sign was a way to magnify who he was because by believing in who he is, then we have life in his name. And you know what? He had come to fulfill the old law all the way to the brim. And this is what he's showing them. And he was offering a new covenant of his blood, atonement, forgiveness, relationship, the wedding. That is what this sign was a picture of, the wedding. He fulfilled the words of Philip. He became everything that the Old Testament prophets were preaching. This was the point of the sign. And I'm going to tell you what. The message alone makes me want to fall out on the ground. I don't need someone to hit me. I don't need to be involved in emotion or some kind of miraculous sign. What I need is the message of eternal life. And when you receive that message, if you want to fall out on the ground... Yay. If you want to shout, yay. But that is the power. Do I believe God can knock you out if he wants to? Yes. But I believe he's capable of beckoning you down the aisle, so don't be calling me by name. Can I get an amen? Yes, absolutely. So don't look for the sign and miss the message. Next week, let me give you a little uh, 
precursor on not next week, in two weeks. So you have a lot of time to study. We will be looking at Jesus cleansing the temple. Let me just wet your whistle. It says the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I want you to understand, as you read it, go into it thinking this way. The idea in this chapter is they're leaving one beautiful separate, uh, celebration to be a part of another beautiful celebration. And just like this wedding had a message inside of it of who Jesus is, so does this celebration. The problem is when they went to see this celebration, it didn't look that way. And so you're about to see Jesus clean house. I want you to think about as you study it, what? What would all this calamity have looked like? I think it'll give you some joy. Picture it. Picture what was going on when he cleaned house. And remember, do a little study on what was this celebration for? What was Passover? What was it celebrating? What was it remembering? And think about what they were turning it into. And if you do some study before, it's even going to be more, okay? Don't ever miss the depth of the message. That's where the beauty is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It is a treasure. Lord, I thank you that you have a love for me like no other. It's a realistic love. You know everything about me and you chose me anyway. I'm your bride. We're your bride. We have your heart. We don't have to work to have your heart. We have it. Everything you want from us, for us, comes out of a heart of love. We don't have to go through anyone else to get to you. You're our bridegroom. You are our intercessor. Lord, I just see, I pray, God, that we would see the joy that is you a living water that is bubbling forth. I think the disciples saw it in you. I think that's why you were, they were so drawn to you. Lord, I thank you that we have the hope of this celebration, that when we see you one day, I will know you and you will fully know me. And to be honest, to be loved is to be fully known. And so, God, I pray that we would fall in love with your word so that we can see through the eyes of your word into this world who really doesn't look like this, a world that tries to hook us with certain joys that we know that will never fulfill. Who can satisfy my soul like you? So, God, be with us as we go. Our world is in your hands, and we stand on that. Whom shall we fear? We fear you. We will wait on you. Let us do our part, but God, the result, the outcome lies in your hands. And no matter the outcome, we will be faithful because God, we worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
and we can be sure that you will make all things right. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.